Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing access of third country bidders to the EU market and research days in academia. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. All right. Here we go again. Here we nice go to, again. Nice to talk to you again, uh, Marta. It's, uh, yeah, good to see you. At some we, point, we need to start to use the video too. Uh, yeah, but then I might need to get out of my sweatpants working from <laughs> yeah. home. Uh, <laughs> All that thing. Yeah, that's true. You're at that's work true. at the moment. I'm still working from home. How, how is it at Copenhagen University? Oh, it's good. It's quite quiet. We have what is referred to potato holidays. So it's a mid-semester break. Oh. And it's very quiet. So I actually can uh, focus a little bit on other aspects of my work than teaching, which is which is also nice. Do, do I dare to ask what potato holiday means yes this actually comes from you know it's sort of historical thing that during this period that was the time in agriculture right when you collect Ah, the potatoes Ah, yeah yeah. all right so that's sort of where the origin of potato holidays comes we don't do our students right i don't think that many of our students do that these days, but they enjoy uh, having a bit of a break of a semester. I just actually thought that your, your meals were getting a lot more boring in this week. But it <laughs> seems like you can eat something else. It's just that you kind of need to harvest it. Just tagging along with the general theme of this podcast, food. also talking about food. I think we've tagged, ticked the first box, you know? Yeah, you're, you're we were talking about potatoes today. <laughs> Uh, all right i should have put that in the introduction actually this is bistec um we're talking about potatoes today potato angle today very Um, versatile food um talking about potatoes um, and perhaps also third country bidders um we'll be looking at uh, this topic which i think is very topical there's a lot going on um and i personally i find it fascinating it instantly gets my um it gets my excitement going basically because you instantly think about politics, you think about the world, about trade, about countries, their interests. So I'm sure we'll be getting a bit more into that uh, just to give our listeners a little bit of an idea on what we'll be talking about. Uh, I think we'll delve into that question first. Day. Is this really political or is this a legal question that we're delving into um, uh, based on some of the research that you've done? Uh, we'll be looking at the EU legal framework for it. Uh, what is the position of third country bidders? Uh, what are legal instruments out there to to perhaps uh, get rid of them? Huh? To say it to say it not so nicely, or to easy, at least bar them from from accessing our markets. Uh, and for that, I think a, a continuous discussion is the international procurement instrument, um, and perhaps more new is the the white paper of the Commission on Foreign Subsidies. Um, so that's something that. Just as an, uh, a starter, before we get to the actual dessert on uh, research uh, stays in, in academia, um, let me just kick off with this question. Um, is this whole topic about third country access, um, or sorry, I should say access of third country bidders from outside of the European Union, is that actually a, a legal question or should it, or is it very heavily uh, political? Well, I think that it's, that it's fascinating uh, and the fascination comes that it's somewhere it is it's 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 combination of those two or at least we we're trying to look into it from that perspective because it's highly controversial from political perspective there's there's been over the last couple of years um quite a lot of focus on 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 this uh from eu um with some initiatives already from 2012 with this newest white paper also. Um, and it pretty much where the root of the conversation around it really is, is that why are we thinking about EU public procurement market, more or less according to some data, um, 85% of that market is actually open for the third country suppliers. And then if you compare it with some other international trading uh, super houses, that looks quite different. Uh, U.S. offers only around 32% of its market 
to foreign bidders. Similarly, um, some smaller markets like Japan, only 28% of the market. Um, and when we look into China, another powerhouse, well, they did not really sign yet any international trading agreement covering public procurement, right? So this notion of that is that... Um, I think it's uh, it's it's automatically falling from 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 our market predominantly small and medium enterprises saying guys we have already huge amount of competition internally at home uh, we cannot really compete outside of EU because we don't really have access to those markets it's not really level playing field and we have increased um, situation in which um, EU also comes into play and and stops certain uh, mergers in 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 uh, railway sector we saw that. Um, so the trying, Alstrom, uh, the Alstrom yeah. Siemens uh, merger. Yeah. Absolutely, right? Kind of saying we cannot allow monopole um, on this. At the same time, the main competitors are already two, three times as big as that merger would be. Um, so so it's the issue of how we, how we somehow give it a go to our small companies versus the, the um, liberalization of trade, broadly speaking, which um, have been focused for many, many years. I think that particularly this discussion in context of, of this political lens have been heated up by the current pandemic. Because pretty much what happened was that we suddenly understood or, or noted that um, the inability uh, of, of our supply chain, right, our, our very long international supply chain and this need to recognize that um, at least in certain core needs that has to be the um, self-sufficiently uh, of, of any, any, any of the markets. So super, super politically charged, very controversial. You for sure on the one hand side will have a team trade um, agreements and liberalization of trade. On the other hand, you will have a sort of small suppliers on the market saying, we all need to play by the same game. Um, you know, I need to. Uh, you, uh, you politicians have been chosen by us to to somehow protect us, and how that all sprinkles to law. Well, in context of law, is for sure the question of of international. Um, trade agreements, are we in accordance with them? Can we actually consider some of those limitations or not? What is actually already allowed? Uh, do we have a sufficient um, framework or do we need something else? So I think it's a combination of a little bit both, but the the loudest voice, at least in my opinion here, is very much driven by the political approach. Yeah, I would concur with that because um, even when you saw in relation to the Alstrom Siemens merger, and you saw how the the French minister and the and their the opposing sides on the German side, I mean, the grave political error to refuse this uh, this merger. Um, mm. This type of policy benefits China, and I'm quoting, benefits China more than it does our competition. Right. So, I, uh, we saw it recently here in the Netherlands as well when the a tender for electric buses was awarded to a Chinese construction company or a Chinese manufacturer in the east of the Netherlands, um, you should see the political upheaval that came from that, right? Why are and, we and not stimulating that, our local uh, absolutely. suppliers? And you, know, and you see that in every country when you have one of those huge, because usually those are the huge procurements, right? In Stockholm, it was metro or train or, or railways, one of, one of those also huge, huge project, right? And the question is also to what extent... EU public procurement rules are to ensure internal market and open competition within internal market in EU and to what extent we are actually um, really actively to seek out, you know, this this broad global liberalization and, and, and access. And, and, and there is, you know, something uh, to be said. Are we being taken for a ride if, if you know, we have other international trade uh, parties still signed to those multilateral agreements, but with some reservations that ultimately in area of procurement allow them to substantially open substantially less the procurement markets that we do and um, to what extent we want to counteract that or to what extent we want to actually lead by an example in this conversation right yeah so that you would uh, as an eu as an international actor have reciprocity or at least perhaps not want or desire reciprocity to a certain extent by just actually because there's also like um this is what i find difficult there's a certain inconsistency to it right 
we want competition, but only competition amongst the, the member states. We value it as a means to get best value for money, et cetera, all these type of national mm-hmm. slash EU goals. Um, but there is friction, obviously, when these uh, third country bidders don't have to follow this the the same rules and this is where i'm getting to in terms of the 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 second aspect um what is their position in under the eu legal framework um uh, currently sure so Specifically, when we address this elements where we can find some type of um, legal reference um, is Article 85 of the Utilities Directives. Um, so, Utilities Directive specifically allows public buyers to reject tenders for the supply contracts if more than 50% of the products come from third countries. And that, of course, applies uh, solely to products that originate in third countries that are not covered by uh, the multilateral or bilateral agreement uh, that ensure a comparable effective um, access of EU suppliers to to those to the foreign markets in other words right um, and what is then allowed under this article is that um, public buyer can reject such a tender um, and if they decide not to do so, they can um, provide a preference for European tender if the offer is uh, equivalent. Yeah. So that's one of the elements. And this is I quite think that interesting. also kind of like relates to, um, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. actually, started talking over the top of you. Um, but I think it's interesting that like the, the utilities, uh, that it would happen there, right? Because I think that's also where the discussion gets so heated when you talk about or perhaps this is more of a competition law term, but essential yeah. facilities, really these network industries where national interests, national security come into play. So it's it's not surprising to me that we would find something like that in the utilities directive. Um, Definitely. Um, where those, I think, concerns have been present for a lot longer than they are in, say, in the scope of the classic uh, uh, procurement directive. For sure, absolutely. And it's quite interesting because the second provision sort of ties to these questions of security of 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 um, th- that you that you just referred, and that is the uh, reference to uh, Restable eighteen of the defense directive, which pretty much confirms for us that um, because the often uh, sensitive nature of the defense and security requirements, it's up to member states to define their own national rules. Uh, for whatever the contracting authority will accept bids from the third country or not. And what is interesting within those two references is that they the, this has not been really used often, at least to 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 my knowledge, um, doing doing uh, the research that we don't really have much case law. But it seems that the topic really um, probably due to the uh, political relevance of it gains some traction. And we actually have um, recently a court judgment from the uh, higher regional court of Brandenburg, so in Germany. Um, and that actually is an example of a case. Um, it was um, invitation to tender issued by the city of Frankfurt for manufacturing and delivery of 45 streetcar vehicles in a competitive procedure with negotiation. And up there we have the Chinese company CRRC and the Czech manufacturer Skoda competing. Um, ultimately, Skoda has been awarded the contract, uh, the Chinese CRRC company um, challenged. Uh, the case went through a couple rounds of appeal um, and ultimately it has been accepted uh, by the review cham- chamber uh, that it was allowed to um, ultimately exclude the Chinese company on the basis of this provision that we just uh, right now discussed Um underlying the large discretion um, of contracting authorities to do that because there is a reference in law pointing out, of course, to principle of uh, proportionality, uh, sorry, principle of transparency, that you just need to ensure within your documentation that you reserve your right to actually exclude on that basis. But in general, we don't see much usage of, of, of this specific provision. So actually where we tend to see a conversation, a legal conversation around this topic uh, very often circulate around. It's actually pointing out we have existing tools within the procurement directives broadly right now um, 
understood. Mainly, you can use provisions on abnormally low tender to assess those bids, and you can utilize the uh, broad approach to sustainable public procure, procurement and provisions of, of, of this uh, in the directives to make sure that the level playing field between all these different buyers, more EU internal or external, are, are uninsured. So at least that's that how it seems on existing current a current uh, framework uh, where we are. Yeah, so basically it would mean that we, we can use, the, the say that this, this provision 69 for abnormally low bids, right? Um, we can use those in general. Um, and if you have an abnormally low bid because say a company ends up um, uh, uh, participating in, in your tender, you could use that means just like you could always use it to to end up to, to exclude this uh, this party. So perhaps... We we don't need new new ins, or at least the argument could then be we don't need anything else. We we can already make do with the with the current current rules. I um, think, and and you see that many commentators, many of our colleagues, also uh, some of our colleagues that that touch upon this subject within some of the commentaries um, in in the recent months. Uh, similarly, as myself, point out to that. Well, there is actually a workable framework. The issue again is. Um, how that frame, how often that framework is used, and what challenges that framework in itself pose, because it's also not without the challenge, right? How we, we don't have a very clear definitions of all, what abnormally low tender is, what's the process, and what are sort of the elements that you actually should use to to define that a whole issue of sustainable public procurement that we on this podcast also several times uh, discuss wide discretion still. Um, so in other words, it's very much left. To contracting authorities to to decide whether they will be using those or not, and and it is quite complex due diligence process, right? Wouldn't you agree? To still yeah, use sure. what I mean, we sure. have, because I mean, just to, to, to off the top of my hat, but also looking ahead towards this white paper to which we'll get to, um, I mean, you would need to establish that there uh, the the abnormally low tender would then be need to have have come about. Um, in a situation perhaps where this this foreign bidder or this third country bidder is heavily subsidized, for instance. Um, uh, I mean, that's it's not an easy task. It's an onerous task for a contracting authority to, to one, prove this within the current framework, right? So I, I totally understand that there are ways of, uh, of using the current uh, rules, but even in normal procurements where you only have bidders that are from from the EU, we already run into issues with with what is an abnormally low tender and what is just Definitely. a strategic tender. Um, add the to the sauce um, or add to to uh, spaghetti. Uh, what's the spaghetti? What's the sauce? I don't know. Like, this is a terrible <laughs> metaphor, but you get what I'm saying. Add to yeah. add like a different extra ingredient to the yeah, to, all of to, it. to the sauce, and you wonder is it still tasty? I, know, I should have not gone down that track of that metaphor. No, no, I understand what, what you mean. I understand what you mean. Yeah, no, and it absolutely. It, um, particularly also when you look at you know exclude or the the uh, exclusion for abnormally low tenders that have been established because of violations of environmental law or or or. I mean, how the, do you the challenge that of that is, of the exactly, exactly, because you know the problem of all of that is that at least on EU level, I mean, like within EU internal market, I think to some extent there has been many years of trying to establish a type of collaborations between the institutions and standardize certain things. We're still not there, but at least in some aspects, you can say that within some of the environmental or social um, laws, broadly speaking, that are somehow coordinated on EU level, we all playing the same. Uh, the same game, so to speak. But how that works when you're starting to have a foreign uh, bidders from outside of you, um, because then it becomes he said, she said, really, right? Oh, th- we do, we do obey by this and that, and this is our document that proves that. But ultimately, a contracting authority. Um, in the EU may not just be able to verify that or, or it will be extremely um, tasking to, to actually verify some of those documentation. So I do understand that on a certain level, this approach with introducing or proposal for this introduction of this additional solutions such as international procurement instrument to which we in the second will go um, or um, the question about the white paper and how we're dealing with the subsidies that this is an element also of considering can we somehow 
have a more standardized approach, maybe simplify it actually for the contracting authorities. But I think that the the it's it's misplaced because it actually provides a certain next level of 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 task on contracting authorities. Or if it's standardized, then we're talking about involving commission of delays within procurements. That is not very practical. So I think to to um, systematize our conversation. There is an argument and there is, I think, a very valid argument that we have a very good framework or at least workable framework to ensure level playing field for EU and third country bidders um, procurement. The challenge is that if we want to focus on that also from a perspective of trying to play a level the playing field, uh, we also need to support um, interpretation of the provisions and practices within how we interpret the provisions on on abnormally low tenders and a whole broad spectrum of sustainable procurement provisions, right? So that's where we are. Would you agree to that? that I, I sort of feel like we need a bit more um, harmonized approach to those provisions and a little bit more information and interpretation, if that is from courts or from legislators to to be able to use it in such a way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think any lawyer arguing against legal certainty would, yeah. uh, I mean, it's probably earning his money in practice. No, just kidding. Yeah. Um, uh, but luckily we're in academia. Um, I, I, the, I, I think, and then perhaps we can start looking at those two instruments because we've mentioned yeah. them a couple of times. I think what's uh, difficult, obviously there's a lot to say against uh, by national legislation, like the, the US has traditionally known um, what I find is the the advantage of that is is it serves a clear policy goal, mm. whether you're for it or against it. It's very yeah. clear you cannot bid or you can only bid under certain conditions or for certain contracts, etc. So we're only opening up our market for certain aspects. Whereas mm. I think generally, and and this is more of a general comment to these these measures that the the commission is has been pushing for the last couple of years, is it's trying to find a middle ground between open trade and still protecting the market or at least leveling the playing field. And I just think that's where, or at least that's where politics can come in, one, mm. and or more strongly because it becomes very blurred. Um, because the, the objective is, uh, is um, in Dutch you say, you lean on two legs, right? It's mm. You're trying to achieve, you're trying to keep what's good, but also maintain what is good at the same time. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's also this notions of, of broadly speaking, EU being, being, and we always go back, whatever topic we discuss, I feel like we always come back to the, uh, on EU level, we're trying to do something more at this point that is just ensure uh, open trade within the borders. It's, it, there is this sort of integration on a larger, to larger extent. And I think it's also a matter of that. And I think there is also, I, I sometimes feel like within this conversation, this element is over overlooked or sort of dismissed because we always push for very open competition that brings us innovation, that brings us the best deals and things that, of course, I'm not dismissing that. And I, of course, agree with that. But I think there is also a plenty of study pointing out that you need to facilitate your own markets to actually support development of innovations within your own markets too. Um, we used to be leaders in many, many things. Uh, we have been overtaken by, by our international trade partners. The question is how we can also support within EU this development of, of innovations of, of uh, really big um, companies that can be actually a, a real competitors, right? So it's very, I think that it's very delicate and it's very uh, complex conversation about it. And all that brings us then to this, to this uh, notion of international procurement instrument. And that is something that has been already proposed in uh, 2012, um, this sort of two... Um, too prone to um, to facet decentralized and centralized approach to solving the issue of lay, level playing field, and notion of um, international procurement instrument uh, was to ensure the reciprocity uh, principle, saying in case uh, that we don't have the reciprocity, we need to have some sort of um, element instrument to uh, to fight that. So the centralized approach um, that was proposed in 2012 
would allow the contracting authorities to reject the bids that consist of more uh, than 50% of non-EU-based goods or services, except uh, where the bidder is from the country uh, with which the EU has an existing international procurement agreement, right? So, so that's something to have in mind. And that the right to exclude would not be automatic, but a contracting authority would need to notify the commission about the uh, intent, what they want to do, and commission would have two months to assess the existence of the reciprocity um, with uh, the third country in question to decide whether or not such a, uh, a proof uh, of exclusion would be would be valid, right? Um, and that proposal at that time has not been met with uh, with enough of support. Uh, while the European Parliament uh, supported it, uh, the consensus consensus among member states uh, was not was not present. So we had then the second layer in 2016, which was a sort of version of simplified international procurement instrument. And pretty much what we said in regards to that, or what the Commission proposed in regards to that, rather than excluding we actually will introduce uh, price penalties or price adjustments, right? In other words, if you're not allow, oh sorry, if you're not um, obeying, let's say, environmental standards or social security, sorry, social standards to the same extent as EU, um, the, there is discrepancy there. There will be a certain cap of of, of money that can be put on on top, and that was um, up to twenty percent of actual price. Uh, that, that have been considered, and then later on, 50%. And that, again, uh, very politically charged, discussed largely, but not really successful. We still did not have a, a chance um, to pass that on. So it seems that it's definitely uh, that member states are worried about suddenly needing to pay much more for the supplies or services or excluding the bids that actually are a great deal for them. Uh, they worry about... Um, the international trading uh, relationships with uh, with different partners. Also, a lot of the European companies using uh, long uh, supply chains that take them outside of EU, right? So it also touches the uh, EU companies. Um, and that's pretty much where, where this uh, has been stuck. A third draft is, is currently contemplated. I sort of see a lot of similarities in approach. I also almost feel like this newest white paper on which in a second you will guide us through a little bit more uh, is a sort of, you know, we have, there's also this saying, and I'm not entirely sure if that's... Uh, in English, or this is me directly in my head translating from Polish, but there's this saying, you know, if you're not getting in through the doors, you're trying through a window. And it's a little bit similar approach here, right? They're trying to get something done. Yeah. They cannot do it that way. So they're trying if, if, if maybe a different approach uh, would would work here. I like I like the saying, by the way. I, I always heard it like when a door closes, a window opens, but yeah. <laughs> maybe that's, it's, it's I, get, I get it. They, they keep Very, pushing variation. it. This really yeah. like, also the in a way, it's kind of a, um, it's an interesting way to get reciprocity going. You, you see the same in like these heavy discussions with, uh, in terms of TTIP, international treaties, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, um, uh, where we use one measure to, to get something else, right? To open up a yeah. market based on yeah. a trade agreement or to, you know, force you to open up your market. The thing that always surprised me is why it would need to take so long to establish if there is reciprocity. Legally, yeah. you have it or you don't have it. I mean, I, I would tend to think that you could uh, set up a, a list of, of of access of certain countries, uh, not so much based on how much we actually, you know, the, the rules are clear, right? You can enter the US for a certain defense contract or you can't as, mm -hmm. a, as a contractor. Um, what I think is most difficult, and I think this is also still uh, very much into the white paper, is the heavy reliance on the... Um, on, on contracting authorities, yeah. right? Is uh, that's I think the most difficult aspect of this is I understand that the commission went from a centralized approach to or like that the, uh, that the commission I should say changed its approach to make it more perhaps more politically feasible. Uh, but the difficulty is this continuously we're making contract we keep adding choices right for contracting mm. authorities to apply in practice. Um, and I know we've gone into this more often, but when you consider the amount of choices and perhaps also the, the seniority of 
of, of purchasing organizations on the national level, particularly the local level, um, uh, are they up for the task of, of, of using this instrument effectively? And yeah. of course, we can live in a legal world where we try to think of all these solutions to societal problems. But, but is that really practical, right? Ultimately. Ultimately, I, I have my doubts. Um, I absolutely do too, because I think, but, but the, you know, the challenge when I sort of uh, hit my head on both of the walls, so to speak, is that on the one hand side, this decentralized issues where we saying, okay, we are not the ones to decide, uh, contracting authorities should have, um, discretion, et cetera, et cetera. Of course it has its pluses. On the other hand side, would you mention, um, not always, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say lack of professionalization, but this is just asking about a lot of other things, right? Than just deciding what type of, uh, I don't know, office supplies I want. Um, so it requires a whole different set of capabilities and skill set. On the other hand side, because commission also, if that is with the white paper or with previous versions of this international procurement instrument, proposes a version of, of actually commission taking some uh, part of the task, right? Saying we will do some investigation, we will look into it. But the challenge of that is also in context of procurement deadlines, right? And the time schemes. I think right now within the white paper, they're operating with 15 days, um, the initial um, looking into the matter, and then up to two or three months. Uh, well, this is quite problematic if you suddenly need to suspend the procurement and wait for the resolvance of, of, of something that will go for two, three months, depending, of course, on which procurement. But I imagine it with every procurement that costs, right? So oh. I think that this is a super challenging question to, to or, or, or sort of scenario to find a good, good, a good solution, how to resolve this issue. Um, shall we? Shall I just briefly introduce the white paper? Does that make? Yeah, uh, for we've mentioned sure. it a I couple think, of times already. Yeah, I think that's definitely. Um, so this uh, is the sort of newest thing, right? That happens in this area. Most recent thing. It came out uh, before the summer. Uh, it's a white paper called "On Leveling the Level Playing Field as Regards Foreign Subsidies." Not the most exciting title, or best, perhaps, <laughs> uh, the best English sentence. But that's a side note. Um, here's the the guy saying who just uh, messed up a couple of uh, metaphors himself. But anyways, <laughs> just a bit of reflection. We need to be forgiven. <laughs> Ultimately, none of us is a native speaker, right? Uh, yeah, with our terrible Australian half accents that, that yeah. keep lingering through. Um, okay, so this is a white paper. It introduces a couple of measures. It's not just about procurement. It also delves with foreign subsidies or uh, shareholdings that are being taken by by foreign uh, foreign uh, companies. Uh, so it's a broader discussion, but it's it's very much linked with the the political legal discussion that we just had or that we touched upon. Um, it basically concerns uh, the question if um, the fact that you've if a third country bidder or a a, a a participant that's actually participating in the internal market has received uh, foreign subsidies, and because of that, they've received uh, a competitive advantage over their competitors. Um, the a financial contribution is then defined as a financial contribution by a government or any public body of a non-EU state, which confers a benefit to a recipient and is and which is limited mm-hmm, to an individual undertaking or industry or group of undertakings or industry. So very much is a parallel. I continuously see the, the dogmatic approach of state aid law as well coming back into this. Um, the system is set up, uh, and I'm summarizing because it's a bit more detailed than that, is that uh, the it's a uh, very much um, uh, a self-assessment. So parties need to notify uh, the contracting authority that is running the tender um, uh, about all sorts of information, or at least that's what the commission is proposing, um, out of which um, they need to notify the main sources of overall financing of the tender, the total amount of foreign financial contribution received over the past three years. That doesn't just stop there. It goes also goes on to uh, future financial contributions that will be received during the course of the execution of the contract, right? So perhaps you can make a low bid now because you're expecting uh, subsidies in the future. And that um, in itself already is an issue, right? There's this elements that you just mentioned and elaborated. It's this, disclosing quite a lot of information or asking sure. to disclose a, quite a lot of information. And I can imagine that a lot of company already companies already at this point, not touching about anything else, yeah. have a little bit of an issue. Uh, definitely, uh, because of the, the fact that um, uh, the, the definition that I just mentioned is so broad. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's any type of financial contribution. Um, 
and because the 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 last three years, the, the time span is quite long, um, mm. and because the definition is so broad, you would need to be disclosing quite a lot of confidential information about how you run your business, right? Um, so the question then is, um, this notification is passed on to, <clears throat> so it's a decentralized thing, get to the National Supervisory Authority that would be made competent to assess it. Um, and if that authority, um, and this is, I think, where the crux, or at least where the, the most interesting aspect of it, or at least that's what I think, is that, again, uh, if that supervisory authority decides that the the involved economic operator has received a foreign subsidy, um, then it is, and I quote, the contracting authority that would determine whether that subsidy has distorted competition. Um, and based on that, um, exclusion would follow. So this party would need to be excluded from the tender if uh, the contracting authority deems that not only there is a subsidy, but there is actually also a distortion of competition because of it. Now, this leaves a lot of discretionary power, right? So the, uh, it leaves a lot of openness for exclusion. Uh, so as we've seen with exclusion grounds, um, it can't be a, an instant exclusion, right? You can't just say any type of foreign bidder is excluded, or at least yeah, that's not based on this. Them. You need to at least investigate. I'm sure in the final proposal, I didn't see it here, there would be some type of self-cleaning measure, or at least some type of responsive measure, or at least the court seems to really focus on that in the last couple of years, is that there need to be some type of dialogue. Yeah. before You need to give some sort place. of space for, for self-cleaning, right? For sure. And I, I mean, it, it, it's difficult in this case because once it's been established that there is a foreign subsidy. Yeah, it's yes or no question, right? Remedy. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So you would need to make the argument that you're not going to use those, those, I'm just thinking out loud, you're not going to use those subsidies or that there isn't actually, a, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a difficult discussion that you end up in, particularly because it's established from a, a by an, an external body rather than just the contracting authority itself. Um, and then, I, it, it's not made explicitly, but the commission is, I think, hinting at adding another exclusion ground in the EU public procurement directives um, by saying that currently there is no exclusion ground that would allow for this. Yeah, uh, and there thereby, is a legal issue here, right? Because that's like you want to introduce ultimately a new exclusion and sort of circumvent the legislative process. So on perhaps, a certain level. I think in a certain in a certain way, um, you could raise the you could raise the question: Do does the commission need to wait until the the next public said batch of public procurement directives yeah. comes out? And uh, is this is this a, is there a need to to include this? I think mm. that it it would be a good good case to make, or at least I think that that has some type of. Um, basis is that you would need to include it. Question is then, is it going to be a facultative one or an obligatory one? Um, and still, uh, I mean, the, the topic that we talked about before, what makes it hard, I think, is, uh, again, the contracting authority needs to decide if this is a distortion. Um, the easiest answer would be is to always say there is a distortion, right? It's yeah. based on the supervisory authority. It's an automatic exclusion. Mm. But that's not the approach of the the commission. So again, we're burdening uh, these type of authorities uh, with this. So, in a way, yeah, an interesting I think, development. I, I think it is, and and you know the the element to sort of round up the the conversation of our main dish for today is also that I find it a bit difficult because on the one hand side we're saying. Um, oh, we don't need anything else because we have open competition and all these rules for open competition and they're going to be sufficient. And then we have actually already measures, particularly there is this reference to right sustainable public procurement, those measures that you can use to ensure level playing field, ensure that the environmental laws, the labor laws, et cetera, are, are um, obeyed. But then on this second hand side, we have also uh, this... Um, sort of viewpoints of really resisting sustainable public procurement, right? Saying, no, 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 this does not belong in a procurement. So I find it a little bit problematic here, to be honest. I think if you're going to say, okay, we don't do all the other stuff because we have existing uh, provisions that I think we need to more clearly establish how those measures are to be used and how they are allowed and how we're ensuring all that. Because it's a little bit continuously, you know, pushing for the the issue and i do think that a lot of the small and medium enterprises i i do understand why why they bring all this as an issue right so it it, it is it is a 
topical and and, and important uh, from from both the legal perspective and legal uh, lens of of our discussion, but also extremely practically. That's the reason I think why it's politically yeah. so charged. So, if if you'll allow me just to briefly summarize, we do think yeah. we think it's a fascinating topic one Absolutely. because it's so political, but illegal, legally wise, or uh, from a legal perspective, it's a difficult discussion. There are some instruments that in the current legislation that could be used to serve this purpose. I think we're both very skeptical about the decentralized approach of an an IPI, an international procurement instrument, uh, or such a subsidies um, uh, measure that's now floated by the European Commission simply because it's putting a heavy burden on contracting authorities. Yeah, and it's not, not getting, exactly, it's not like they're getting something for it, right? It's just another task, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Time for time for dessert? Time for dessert. Um. Travel stays, research stays. Um, I think what's interesting is we've kind of, um, we've both been to various institutions in the past, whether that be for conferences, but this, these are obviously longer stints, right? That you would yeah. actually get some time away, whether it be a week or it could be a couple of months. Um, I stayed at George Washington University in the US during my PhD, but um, I'm now, um, uh, we'll probably join you, which is interesting, right? Next <laughs> That's year. true. That's true. Um, we just talk about it. Uh, at For, for uh, two weeks, um, if you can bear me that long. Uh, uh, tough, tough goal. And perhaps you'll will arrange some reciprocity for you to come to Utrecht after a while. Anyway, so yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll figure that out. Um, but more generally, it is an as- a part of our, our lives as academics. Um, so you actually in, suggested it. Yeah. To, to discuss I it think, today. I think I don't. I'm not sure how it's at your university, but I know that when you do a PhD um, in Denmark, that's actually one of requirements by ministerial no, order so. yeah did you did you actually are to experience some type of external um environment which usually means uh yeah foreign research stay uh, some colleagues due to you know all different reasons depending i guess also what is your research and what is your family um circ- what are your family circumstances they are just changing universities within within denmark for some time or go to some public institutions that are not always universities. But I guess the assumption of that is if that is requirement within the PhD or if that is a part, let's say, of your sabbatical and if you if you um if you professor, associate professor, etc. Um the notion of that is that when you have an opportunity of changing uh work environment, this sort of research environment, you look at things with a fresh set of eyes from a little bit different perspective um, and it can have a lot of um, great advantages. Um, so I just thought that it would be really interesting to talk about little um, from from both our experiences. As, as, as you mentioned, we, 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 we both have a bit excessive international experience i guess in this regards um what you would consider what would be the purpose when you when we you went on this research stage what would be the the purpose of of those trips and what were some aspects that you consider when you were deciding where to go uh good uh good questions um i didn't i have to say at the time i didn't I mean, I have to be honest. I, <laughs> a lot of these things just happen as they happen, right? Mm. Um, now, I think in terms of um, the reason why or why I find it interesting or why I still pursue it is um, leaving like access to documents aside, which is very rarely still a reason why you would need to go abroad. Right? So there's certain documents or case law that you can't access still online. Um, but for people coming into our center, the, the Utrecht University Center for Public Procurement, that's rarely the case. All Dutch case law is accessible online. Most journals are also, actually all journals are also accessible online. So there's rarely, so why do you go then? I think two reasons is space to think. So if you do it well, it allows you to not have to think about daily ongoing business that's going on that distracts Administrative tasks, teaching sure. stuff, right? Like you have a bit of break of those for sure. That's one. And two, uh, people. Um, I find that uh, 
not just to have drinks or dinners with after a conference, <laughs> um, but I find that's really to really find the intricacies of the law or to talk to practitioners, see what's really going on here, right? So not mm-hmm. just in terms of empirical data gathering or interviews or those type of things, which it can also be a purpose of a visit, but I find that through those, you really get an idea of what's what's going on. How is the law in practice experience so that can feed into your research this is i think one of the so space to think and people would be the reason why i would um so if you were wanting to know why i'm coming to copenhagen that's the reason <laughs> that's the space to think because people you already know <laughs> exactly. no for sure um this is very interesting I, i'm going to throw in a, a bit curveball to this conversation because we both actually spent some time in in Australia and I think both of us probably in regards to also what we research I know that I did during my PhD time this question but why would you go to Australia when you're looking into European Union stuff so I want to sort of be a bit real because I think this also when we when we uh, set up the ambitions for this post- podcast was to be very very real what about place isn't it that oh you would really want to go if that is you know Australia or if that's California or whatever else that this just allows you for this phenomenal opportunity of to also just go to these places is that playing any role you think 100% right yeah I think that there's also element of that that I feel that people don't like to say out loud, but I do think that it's very important. Not very important, but I think that it plays a role when people make those choices. So let me justify this then and link it yeah. to the, the, the first thing I was saying. I do think it if you're going somewhere and you feel like you're <clears throat> really entering a, a different space of mind, right? Different, I'm just saying different culture, different climate, it does change the way you look at things and the way you, it, talking about the space to think, I yeah. do think it adds it's to part it. of it a little bit. Uh, now, obviously, this shouldn't be the sole reason why you do it, right? So the same as, I mean, I think the time, particularly now with, you know, climate change, I think the time to just go to a conference in a beautiful place, but it's on the it's other side of the, the world and the conference yeah. is not it's a conference of 20,000 people and you're in a back room with two people listening to your presentation. Yes, okay, maybe it has a tiny bit of a benefit, but I don't think we can justify that anymore. But you're mm-hmm. right. I do think it it adds and I think it's it's functional. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. I don't I know. It, 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 it kind of makes me feel bad now that you're saying it, but I do no, think no, it helps. But the reason I, I do that purposely, because I do think that a lot of people consider those elements too. And I think that a lot of people are not willing to share that because they feel that there is something shameful about it. Now, I don't mean that you go uh, for research, say for a month, I don't know, to Italy, California, Hawaii or whatever, and you go one time to work and you just... You didn't mention the Netherlands in that list. (laughs) The Netherlands, well known for their phenomenal weather. Uh, And wine and food culture. Yeah, Absolutely. We'll get back to that. But, you know, it's not about you saying that you go into those places because you want to go to those places and you don't do any work and sit on the beach. It's not about that. But I think that the part of being somehow removed from your immediate research environment, having this space to think, sometimes even uh, being in a research environment that it's not necessarily procurement research environment. I know that over the years I've been on two institutions, one in Australia, one in New York, that um, people were not necessarily researchers within procurement, but within other associated uh, research areas that were relevant to my work. And I just thought that that was extremely helpful because we tend to sit within, you know, our own little bubble and kind of look at everything from very specific angle and getting exposure to people from different areas. Um, I think your center, what is brilliant, that is also not a different areas of law, but also different disciplines. It's really helpful. So I think that that's great. Now, when it comes to the elements, what, um, what are the things to consider? And that is an, an aspect that I feel I feel quite strongly about because I sort of seen it working time and time again, is that I think at some point, you know, you consider also ranking of universities, you know, how well respected, how well known the, let's say, research center or faculty or law school is that you want to go and how great it will look on your CV that you've been to that place or specific professor that you want to work with and so on and so forth um, versus um, 
other institutions that are maybe not, you know, Ivy League, let's say, or top tier university, but there are people that you already somehow connected with and you have a feeling that that may be a more hospital um, sort of research state environment. What I mean by that is that um, we had a very much this this experience uh, with my partner. We had a chance to both go at the same time on research day. Um, and we've both in, been in two different institutions, right? One of the institutions was, you know, the leading top tier um, law school, super renowned, super prestigious. But I feel like a lot of those institutions, they are used to having millions and millions of applications for research state. They often don't even sort of have a capacity to give you an office. You just have access to library. Maybe someone wants to have a time to meet with you. And I think that you will get a bit less of that research day experience versus if you go somewhere else and there are people that genuinely want to talk to you and want to hear what is your research, give you opportunity to present on some sort of internal seminars, have some sort of workshops. And and I personally would choose the second option. Um, I think that you're getting more out of it. And I was wondering, what is your opinion? I 100% agree. It's just so annoying. Like, uh, maybe this is the <laughs> No, I've said 100% a lot in this podcast already. I think <clears throat> what's very easy is to go for the, the resume building, like you're saying. But I think you also see a parallel of the other dessert that we had in a, an episode a while ago when you're looking for the supervision of your thesis, right? Yeah. Um, a, a person that is still in their younger years of their uh, their their uh, academic career will devote a lot more time, be perhaps more interested, also have a lot more time. It's not always evil will, right? I'm not saying that, but yeah. I think the same, the, 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 the human connection or the connection that you have to a person. Also, if that person sees some benefit in it, right? If it's just, you know, if you're the 50th, person rolling in the for the year i mean it's impossible to see some type sure, of that's very benefit. true um so yeah yeah in, in a way i've um I, I i don't even know what the ranking of copenhagen is i mean i know i studied there <laughs> and i think it's a it's a beautiful university it's a pretty good university great people working there but i mean I, do you know what i'm do you know what i'm trying no, to say no i understand but you know when you made this comment actually something else came to my mind that maybe is also actually that actually is connected with your seniority. Because I also imagine that um, if you uh, if you really sort of in the later years or stages of your career and you have a lot of ideas and just what you're looking for in that research day is change of environment, peace and quiet, kind of getting away from all the admin teaching, et cetera, et cetera, then actually maybe it does not matter so much. If the reason why you go for research day is, for example, to just be able to have access to library that you can write your monograph and you actually purposely will not want to have that much interaction maybe with different researchers. So the people bit is just scrapped off. It's it's right? space to think and books instead of people. Yeah. yeah. And I think that maybe from that perspective, it actually then is what for you to consider what you want to get out of such a, such a research state that your conclusions or perspective will be different. Yeah, for sure. You've given me lots to think about next year. <laughs> yeah, where you want to go and what you want to do. <laughs> no, I'm coming to Copenhagen. This is, it's yeah, we're waiting. We already <laughs> rolled out, you know, vacuumed the red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> to match to match my strawberry blonde hair, uh, I absolutely. think it's time to uh, to roll to out. Yep, absolutely. We just <laughs> to, went on this. Yeah, I have been a terrible timekeeper. I'm. I have to apologize to everyone. Um, I really enjoy talking to you, which sometimes leads to longer discussions than we initially set out to do. So this podcast episode will be a bit longer than than normal. But anyways, if you've tuned out by now or if you're still listening, it was great to great to have you. We'd look forward to your input. Um, it was uh, great to discuss uh, access to third country or access of third country bidders to the EU market and to talk a bit about research stays. Um, should you have any feedback or comments, please uh, know where to find us. Um, uh, do you have anything more to add, Marta, as one last thing? No, no, just thank you. Thank you for everyone that managed to still stay with us 50, 52 minutes in. Should we mention potatoes again just to yeah. make go full circle? Uh, enjoy yeah, your potato week. Um, and uh, this was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bistecpodcast.com. Thank you.